0: Open your Bibles, if you will, please, to the second chapter of Galatians, as we return to the book of Galatians. Sometimes there are texts of Scripture that are hard to understand, and I realize that if we were to select an author who is... Difficult at times, it would be the Apostle Paul. Although I have a harder time understanding Daniel and Revelation, to some of your frustration, you wish I'd preach on them, and I'm not about to. But I hope someday you'll have a pastor who will preach on Revelation. Um, but I, I want you to remind yourself as we study this book of Galatians that. Um, the Bible says all scripture is profitable, all. And that means that uh, it's not just the nice stories that we have in the Gospels of Jesus, uh, the, the the simple stories that he has told that we call parables, the healings, uh, not just places like the accounts of David and Goliath in the Old Testament, these stories that are very easy for us as children, even from a very young age to see some of God's teaching for us through them, but also places like the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. And uh, it may be that you're young or that you consider yourself to not be very good with words, but walk by faith. And as we study this text of scripture this week in the second chapter of Galatians, but also through the rest of Galatians, trust that God has... This in the Bible for you, not just for others, but for you, and that he will use it to make you everything that he wants you to be. Now, let us read together Galatians 2, verses 19 to 21 again this week. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So what is this saying? Well, it's saying that when the Apostle Paul, he is saying, when he did his utmost to be saved by keeping the law, he came to see that like every other man who had ever lived, he fell short of the glory of God and therefore was under God's righteous condemnation. And so it was the ministry of the law to lead the Apostle Paul to death. Sometimes you might hear statements in Scripture Um, statements to the effect that uh, the law was given that sin may increase. Well, it seems very, very confusing. But if you think about it, the law leads us to death, Paul says here. Um, And as he dies, he then despairs of himself. He sees his sin increasing, and this drives him to the grace of Jesus Christ. And think about the Apostle Paul particularly. Think that when Paul was, as he saw it, most righteous, carrying out the persecution of the new Christian church with pharisaical zeal, at that exact time he found on the roads of Damascus that these very actions he thought were good were the supreme expression of his righteousness before God. At that exact time, he found that what he was doing was terribly evil because by these very actions, he was persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what he means when he says in the first half of verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. You get done persecuting the church, thinking you're protecting God's glory and protecting the law of God as it's revealed in the Old Testament. And then a voice comes from heaven, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And you can realize that uh, Mary Lee was describing to somebody the other day, J- Taylor, uh, I think it was Taylor, who knows. But anyhow, in the Children's Museum, going up to look at something, not realizing a very thick pane of, of plate glass there. And so he just trucks into the thing and bam! And it's like somebody took a fist and punched him in the face. He bounces back. Well, that would have been about like what it was with the Apostle Paul. had absolutely no doubt. He was completely self-confident. He was the star pupil of of the principal teacher of the Pharisees, Gamaliel. He's trucking along and bam! He died to the law. He realized that his... Best righteousness was filthy rags. Through the law, verse 19, he died to the law. But, he was not left dead. Rather, it says, he died to the law, what? So that he might live to God. And in verse 20, Paul opens up this statement that he made in verse 19 even more. And he puts it another way, saying, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I said last week that we have a a parallelism between verses 19 and and verse 20, that through the law I died to the law, it says in verse 19, and then in 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And then verse 19, so that I might live to God, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now if you look back at verse 17 you will see there that the whole context for this part of the Apostle Paul's argument is that he has been accused of encouraging sin by his teaching that we're saved by the work of Jesus alone and nothing good we ourselves do. And you see sort of a a compression uh, of the argument that others are making against him in verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? And that's a synopsis of what he's being accused of saying, that Christ, he, is making Christ a minister of sin. The Judaizers have accused him with words that go something like this. You're teaching cheap grace, and if you keep that up, you're going to lead many people into sin. They'll think there's no sense being good, since being good doesn't save them, and so they'll just be bad. And so you're teaching about Jesus, will lead them into sin, and you will make Jesus into an instrument, a tool, a worker of iniquity. You will make him into a minister of sin. Well, what's his response? Well, at the end of verse 17 he says, May it never be. He responds by saying that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and this is a gift, but saving faith is never lacking in good works, in holiness and righteousness, and Because saving faith always unites the believer to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ's death, and to his resurrection, and to his newness of life. And that through that union with Christ, the believer dies to sin and lives to righteousness. He is liberated from his slavery to Satan, so that he may become the slave of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And we see this image in baptism where the new believer is buried with Christ and then raised into newness of life. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, as I said last week, at this point, many are tempted to think that the Apostle Paul's here talking about a sort of Eastern mysticism whereby we decrease and God increases. That as we lay down our lives and our wills and our personalities and our actions, God is pleased to fill us with himself and to live through us his life, his will, his personality, and his actions. It's a similar argument that Uh, biblical Christians have thrown at them when they describe the agency of the Holy Spirit in the writing of Scripture, where they say that uh, the Bible itself testifies concerning itself that nobody ever writes out of their own will, but holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so what people who are uh, unbelievers in the biblical doctrine of Scripture say is well so you're removing the agency of men uh, in other words you're saying that uh, you really believe in what in the uh, some call it the dictation theory that the only reason God needed men was because he got tired of writing on the rocks with Moses and so he decided this time he was going to use men but the men had no more agency than Moses did as he stood there waiting for the tablets to be handed to him well, that's not the biblical doctrine of the role of, of men like the Apostle Paul in the writing of Scripture. Because God's working through them doesn't mean that you don't see Paul's personality. I mean, right? You can see Paul's personality very, very clearly. You can see Matthew's personality very, very clearly. You can see Mark's and Luke's and John. In some ways, the Gospels are the best way of seeing that God is pleased to use the personalities Of sinful man in doing his work. I mean, John, right, who wrote the gospel of John, right, is not Mark (laughs) and not Matthew. And you can tell Luke's a physician, can't you? Women are popping up all the time. Babies are born. Doctors are aware of, uh, some say, uh, Certainly aware of sin of of sickness, I should say, and uh, Luke is a physician, and you see this in the account, the way his account of the gospel, of the life of Christ differs from the others. You go into uh, Paul's writing, and you see that he was trained as a rabbi. Um, so no, we don't believe that God is pleased the minute a man or a woman believe in Jesus Christ to remove their personality. We don't believe that about the writers of Scripture. We don't believe that about those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, before he was a believer in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul was extremely zealous in the persecution of the church. And after he became a Christian, he was extremely zealous in the building of the church. And that was Paul. So, no. Uh, What Paul is talking about here, when he says that it's no longer he himself who lives, but Christ who lives in him, is not a sort of uh, Eastern mysticism whereby we decrease, God increases, we lay down our lives, wills, personalities, and actions, and God fills us with his life, will, personality, and actions. The aliveness that the Apostle Paul is talking about is not one that leads us away from our personality, but instead one that changes us so that instead of sin being our master, God is our master. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he controls us. And his control is not away from life into the mist and ozone of self-negation. Rather, it is towards life, true life, in which everything is clear, in which we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us and he makes all things new, in which we don't appreciate spring less but more, in which we are zealous for good works, knowing that it is those good works to which we have been called, to which we have been saved. In Ephesians 2.10, we read, For we are... His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, the Apostle Paul writes, instruct those who are rich in this present. Well, that's everybody here. Any American is rich. Even those of you who get help from the deacons fund, you're rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them what? To do good and to be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Okay, so we are dead, In Jesus Christ does live in us, but he lives in us in such a way that we will honor and glorify him by fulfilling all his commands, and most particularly his command that we're to bear fruit. After all, our Savior's rule is by their fruit, you shall know them. The life which I now live in the flesh, and that is flesh, um, if you you have been seduced by the vision that uh, God intends heaven to start here on earth by the removal of all sickness and all suffering and all sin and all pain in this life, which is taught on Trinity Broadcasting Network almost endlessly, If you think that the victorious Christian life is a Christian life where one day you will be able to say, I have been completely sanctified, uh, where one day you will have the faith to face down any sickness that comes into your life or the life of your children, where one day you will have the faith when your brother dies to go into the hospital room and command him to rise and God has so sanctified you that your brother will rise from the dead in the hospital, and that anybody who questions that is guilty of a negative confession. All right. This is not scriptural. And there are, are, are almost an endless number of verses, number of stories, examples in scripture that, that show it's not true. Uh, but let's deal with our text this morning. Notice that our text says this it says, The life which I now live, what? In the flesh. In the flesh. I don't think anybody's about to say that the flesh uh, is right now, here and now, redeemed. After all, the word flesh is used there as an indication that we do not yet have what we hope for. That we still need faith. And it goes on and it says, The life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith. And you see that there's some tension there in the text between the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Because flesh, now I'm not getting into dualism here where I'm saying that we will not in heaven be bodies, we will. But they'll be redeemed, they'll be perfected. But here we feel this tension that sometimes is expressed in saying the spirit is willing, but the body is weak, the flesh is weak. So here it shows us the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith. Faith redeems even the sinful flesh that we are uh, imprisoned by in this life. What is the life of faith? And that's the next question we should ask in this text. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, the life of faith, as I've been saying, is the life of bearing fruit for the Lord. Opening up this verse a little more and dealing with some of the dangers of it, Timothy George says this. He says, The indwelling of Christ does not mean that we're delivered from the realm of suffering, sin, and death. Paul made this abundantly clear in his very next phrase, The life I now live in the flesh. So long as we live in the flesh, we will continue to struggle with sin and to groan along with the fallen creation around us. Perfectionism, this side of heaven, is an illusion. Let me read to you from the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 22 to 26. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, that is (laughs) the victorious Christian life. That's it. Paul's just described to you what a really victorious Christian will live like. And what are the words he uses? Well, listen again. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan, waiting eagerly. Hope that is seen is not hope. With perseverance, we wait eagerly. The Spirit also helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. A lot of groaning then. So why? God is pleased to perfect us through pain and suffering. And if Trinity Broadcasting Network is correct, the purpose of the pain and suffering God leads us to in our life is so that we can turn from negative confessions to positive confessions. And I'm being cynical. And that's the only uh, proper tool to deal with Trinity Broadcasting Network and all of its heretical, destructive teachings. Um, The health and wealth gospel is a heresy. The Apostle Paul was a fool if the health and wealth gospel is true. He just needed to get over all those negative confessions that cost him to to be kicked out of the cities and stoned and shipwrecked and and hungry and and naked and all that stuff. Um, If he just had faith, he could have taken every city he went into and left riding on the wave of a parade. And I'm being cynical because... You shouldn't dignify that stuff with a serious argument. Nowhere in Scripture does it show a victorious Christian life where you sit around in rooms filled with gilded furniture and, and heaving bosoms and big hair and, and positive confessions of every day and every way the world is getting better and better. And it shouldn't be treated seriously. We should laugh at it. Now, we're not laughing at it because they threaten us. Please. They don't. Not me. Um, When I was growing up, my brothers died. And my parents believed they'd be, be healed and anointed them with oil. And God chose not to do it. And I haven't spent the rest of my life berating my parents for having a negative confession. I mean, that's despicable. Rather, I praise my parents because I saw the work of God in them. As I heard growing up, my father say often that he and Mud, my mother, were never as convinced of the love of God as when they walked away from the fresh grave of one of their children. So what do you think? Trinity Broadcasting Network has something to teach them? God is pleased to have us confess our weakness, to come into church and to confess our sin, to come to the elders and to confess our sin. And God is pleased to lift up those who are contrite of heart. God is pleased when we humble ourselves in the presence of God and he will lift us up. In our weakness, he is made strong, not in our strength. And that's always, always, always what Satan is trying to do to the people of God, to convince them that, uh, and I I have this image in my mind, and it doesn't quite work, but I'm going to get it out because it's in there. Um, I was thinking this morning about how to communicate our position with God. And I kept thinking of a baby. Uh, and, and how a baby is able to elicit, to pull out of his mother, her care. And you think about that baby, and you think, well, that's a good image of the Christian before the Holy Spirit, before Jesus Christ, that it's helpless, it can't do anything. But think about a baby, it actually does do a lot of things. Um, a baby, for instance, looks cute. You know, who doesn't want to pick up a baby? except uh, dyspeptic, uh, obnoxious older men who have never had a thought of anybody but themselves their whole lives, right? I mean, even normally grunting men will pick up a baby and hold it, right? And as you look at the baby with its eyes, with its helplessness, the baby does do something. Namely, if you don't do what it wants you to do, it will scream. And so even in a negative way, you can say that the baby does help a mother to be motherly, right? And so the more that I thought about this image, the more I realized this image is is like absolutely perfect for what we as Christians and what pagans are always doing, thinking that they can somehow help God. You know, it's not much. It's a baby. It's helpless. It'll lie there. It'll die if you don't help it, right? So that's good. But on the other hand, it can scream and it can look cute and it can, like, bring out of us our maternal instincts, right? And our paternal instincts. Well, what the Bible says about us is that it says we are what? Come on, Ephesians. It says we're dead. It says we're dead. The Bible doesn't just say we're dead. The Bible says, I mean, turn around. Look at Eli. You know, Eli is infinitely more powerful getting something good out of his mother and father and us than we are with God. Uh, We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and the Bible also says that we are God's what? Yeah, good. Workmanship, yes, but that's not the particular one I was thinking of. And you know the game. It's always to come up with the one I'm thinking of. (laughs) Not workmanship. Yes, workmanship. Not workmanship, right? Think in parallel construction. Dead and God's enemies. (laughs) See, that's what I was thinking about. (laughs) And, you know, what do you do to an enemy? You oppose him. It's very interesting that God has pleased those who are dead and those who are his enemies to, to fill them with life, to take them from death to life. And if you think of Scripture and all the images it uses, of uh, what God is pleased to do with us. God is pleased to pick us up and to uh, wash us, to clothe us. You have the image of of Adam and Eve in the garden that he made clothing for them to cover their nakedness. You think of God buying us off the auction block like Hosea and Gomer. You think of God uh, betrothing himself to us, of feeding us, of caring for us, in other words, uh, from the time that we are first conceived in the womb of our mother, even before then, to the, to the time of our natural death, in every way we are dependent upon the provision of God. And most particularly when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Um, and, and, and our lives in this earth are lives in the veil of tears. We do live in the midst of death. Um, when we become Christians, we do not enter heaven. Uh, the life of a Christian is not from glory to glory except by faith. There is much uh, suffering uh, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. It grace that brought me this far, and grace will lead me home. And uh, I I exhort you as a congregation to remember that this text says that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Those things are opposed to each other. Living in the flesh and living by faith, faith draws the flesh right into righteousness, into life, and into heaven. All right? And if you are in the habit of reading books and listening to preachers and watching television that teaches you that faith will cause you to not see the bad in life, to not suffer sickness, to never die, to never sin, what you're doing is you're taking in poison that will destroy your soul. It is that serious. This morning as I prepared to preach to you... um, I listen to uh, uh, I have uh, I have a Mac and so I have iTunes and so I've taken all my CDs and put them on my um, laptop and I was listening to a particular playlist that I have that's called uh, gospel and it's a bunch of choirs and uh, I love them and if you want to know what they are I'm happy to tell you send me an email but one of them is uh, called something like uh, the Harlem Addict Recovery Choir or something. And it's an a cappella uh, choir from, obviously from Harlem. And they're all heroin addicts. Well, actually, I'm not sure. I think they all were. Well, maybe cocaine, maybe alcohol, but I think it's all a drug. And uh, if you listen to the songs that they sing, Uh, They're victorious and they are songs of suffering and dependence on God. And I encourage you to take seriously what you bring into your mind and into your heart and even down to things like the music you listen to. If you listen to Christian songs where every song ends with a crescendo, that's like Trinity Broadcasting Network. You know, every song is, you know, every day in every way the world is getting better and better. It's not. You need to, you need to take in a diet that is biblical. And that means you need to know hymns like, uh, I mean, look, Greatest Thy Faithfulness, that's about as positive as it comes, right? But do you know where it comes from in Scripture? Lamentations. I am the man who what has suffered things like uh, uh, gravel in his teeth, lions pawing him on the path, suffering, 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 and yet for this reason, I'm not going to despair. I still have hope because of the Lord's. How does it go? Because of the Lord's mercy, because of His compassion, we are not consumed. Yes, He does shake us and rip us and tear us for a night, but in the morning, His faithfulness appears. Great is His faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. You, if you love that hymn, you need to go to Lamentations and you need to read where that text comes from. Because the entire context for that text is not every day and every way the world is getting better and better, but every day and every way the world is getting worse and worse. And you need to think in terms of the books you read, the movies that you watch. You need to think in terms of the music that you listen to, the preaching that you sit under, the television that you suck in, or rather that assaults you, what my father called that huckster in your living room. All right? Even the ads you look at, you need to think, what are you teaching yourself? What kind of spiritual truth are you being given? Well, in our text, it says what? It says that the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith, by faith. And the faith is not, I'm not living in the flesh. No, we are living in the flesh, but we live by faith. All right, saying I live in the flesh is not a negative confession. It's a positive confession because scripture says it. All right. We continue to live here in this world, but we live by faith. And what is that faith in? Well, it says, I live by faith in what? The son of God who what? Look at your Bibles and tell me. I live by faith in what? The Son of God who who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Now that's where we're going to end and I want you to notice something. Notice in the text here, as we get to the end of that verse, notice that it does not say the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved us and gave himself up for us. a very small change wouldn't it? simply from the singular to the plural. but you know no 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 sinner is saved in the plural. but we are saved in the singular. one by one as we close with god through faith now, now listen here, listen. I want you to be aware that when it tells us about this faith, it is not saying that this faith is a faith in the prophetic office of Jesus Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who said many true things that are very wise and deep and went against the grain of this sinful world. Um, Muslims believe that. Muslims are not saved. It's not a faith in... Jesus Christ being a great humanitarian teacher with profound insight and the ability to show us a moral life. That's the Western world's educational God. But that's not the faith the Apostle Paul is speaking of. Now, watch this. It is not speaking of a faith that believes that Jesus Christ died to save the world. Because you know something? The demons believe that. What faith is it? What does it say? Look at it. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You don't really think of emphasizing those me's, do you? But you know, there are places where the Christian, the gospel, is very, very, very personal. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus died for you? For you. If you do not believe that Jesus died for you, You are not a Christian. Even if you believe that He died for the sins of the world, even if you believe that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life, you're not a Christian. If you do not believe that Jesus loved you and died for you, the gospel is not hypothetical, it's not general. It's not corporate. The gospel is personal. And it would be foolish for you to get to the end of this text hearing all the good things that God gives to those with faith. And then at the end to say, how blessed are all those who have been redeemed in this way. Uh, How good God is. Uh, But I am not convinced that Jesus knows me or loves me or that his cross and his death have purchased my salvation. And so I want to end by asking you whether in fact you do believe that Jesus loves you. I don't remember who it was. I think it was Karl Barth. But one of these great theologians was once asked something like, what was the most profound truth that you have ever learned as a theologian and his response was Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so and I encourage all of you by faith to close with God God is pleased to transfer you from death to life simply by uttering that statement that the Apostle Paul makes when he says that he has faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. And if you look in Scripture, you will see many, many statements connected with this beautiful truth that God is pleased to save those who make a similar confession. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Everyone who confesses me before men... I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And then, Romans 10, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if, what? You confess with your mouth. Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth... He confesses, resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who what? Call on Him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father, Father, I pray this morning for every soul that is gathered in this room. Lord, that you will keep them, keep him, keep her from believing generally in the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may every soul here believe in the love of Jesus Christ for sinful men and women. Lord, give them the gift of faith, that they may believe that Jesus loved them so much, that he died for them, and that as they place their faith in him, their sins are washed away. Father, those here this morning that think that they may enter heaven through anything that they do, Lord, we pray that you will make them see that all their righteousness is as filthy rags, menstrual rags to you, and that you are so holy that in your presence no person can stand. Lord, help them to die to the law, that they might be born again in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that the life that they live in the flesh, they may live by faith in the son of god who loved them and gave himself up for them father make every one of us this week confess our faith in jesus christ and not be ashamed but speak we pray in jesus name amen let's